This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 4, Episode 19. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 19 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziganfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfus. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Good morning, Randy. Hello, Lynn. So really excited that we have the opportunity to talk today with Charity Allen and Kale Burke, authors of Changing Change Using Learner-Centered Design, From Failed Initiatives to a Change Process that Connects, Empowers, and Actually Works. And uh, we both love this resource that you've created um, with a sense of humor and uh, <laughs> and um, a lot of nuggets to take away and some real opportunity for uh, reflection through the work. So excited to learn more about this resource from Charity and Kale. So a little bit about Charity and Kale before we get started. Charity is a creative leader focused on innovation and education. She currently serves as president and CEO of PBLC, an independent consulting group empowering deeper learning. With many years of experience behind her work, Charity is slightly fanatical about deeper learning and stays focused on empowering powerful teaching and learning through project-based learning gamification, STEAM, and more. She designs and delivers immersive professional learning experiences in multiple languages and provides ongoing support to teachers in diverse learning environments. She believes change matters and the experience of change can be pleasant, powerful, and effective. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. We also have Kale. Kale is District Head of Innovation in British Columbia, Canada, and Senior Leadership Consultant for PBLC. In his 15 years as a high school administrator, Kale has lived through the challenges that come with implementing change at nearly every level of the school system. Drawing on his experiences as a change agent, Kale works with leaders on a daily basis to use practical strategies to reimagine the process of change in schools. Kale helps leaders to envision the development of every kind of learner experience, class, faculty meeting, professional learning day, administrative meeting, parent advisory group, and more as an opportunity to build connections and empower improvement. So welcome to the podcast, Charity and Kale. Glad to have you here. Welcome. Oh, excited to be here. Thanks. And uh, before we actually started recording, we had some uh, pre-podcast conversation where both Lynn and I shared um, with Charity and Kale just how much fun their book is. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll hopefully we'll communicate some of that fun, but you definitely have to have it in your hands and, and uh, see and read it, too, to, to see... Um, how much fun they use to communicate a really powerful, important message. I, mean, I was literally giggling. Yes. 
<laughs> and Lynn is not one to giggle oh, ever. Just, just a little. Just ever. Just a little. So to uh, start our conversation here, let's uh, talk about Changing Change and what led you to craft this book? And why is it such a great mentor text for those of us who are focused on transforming our educational system? Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, a coming together of a few concurrent trains of thought and really some pieces of, uh, of disconnection that I was having as a principal. So we were this high performing school or, you know, relatively high performing school, I thought, and we had made a number of significant changes in the way that, that we were doing things from, a, from working with our students that struggled in our response to intervention program to our uh, collaborative uh, time model, to our assessment practices. We had made a, a, what I thought were a number of substantive changes, but yet when I was in classes, I noticed that our students weren't really any more engaged in, uh, in their studies or in their classes. Um, and I even had one of our former students say to me, Mr. Burke, I, I became really good at, at playing the game of school, which was, was really hard to hear when this was coming from one of our you know, you know, sort of best and brightest students saying that their experience was really just to move through the system. And I also noticed as, as the principal that I myself was struggling with engaging our teachers um, with um, engaging in meaningful staff development and professional development that actually made a difference um, to the classroom environment. I also noticed that <clears throat> in my own experiences with district meetings and initiatives and ministry initiatives, that there were a lot of things that while they were you know, designed with the best of intentions, um, they actually were done to schools um, rather than uh, for schools and with schools. And, and I felt like as a school leader, I didn't really have much of a voice or any choice in those matters. And then, and, you know, as a, as a parent, and, and as I said, we're all, we're all experts on parenting prior to actually having children. <laughs> um, the, uh, I noticed that a lot of things for, the, for parents were, were just sort of done and done because it worked well for the school. And I really began to wonder what's the experience for all the people in our school. And I had that uh, watershed moment uh, in, in, in my sort of innovation work in, of all places, Rhode Island, uh, where I went to a, a conference and I spoke to a lead digital innovator of a large cosmetics company who said, um, you know, we were just talking about kids and his children going to school. And I was telling them a little bit about the research that I was doing. And, and he had said, you know, if you really want to understand the current experience of the people in your schools, why don't you just ask them? Mm -hmm. And I sat there, you know, a bit stunned, um, just thinking, wow, that's really simple. And yet he went on to say that if he, in his capacity, had the same access to his clients that we did in schools to ours, that, that likely he wouldn't even have a job. And I thought, why don't we ask these people? We have our students in our classrooms. We have our teachers in the faculty lounge and at the photocopier. And certainly we have our, our parents in the parking lot. Why can't we just ask them what their experience of school might actually be? And so after that, I began looking outside of the education sector to other sectors to see, well, how are they ha handling complex change and, and complex design challenges? And so I spent some time with some innovators in different sectors. I spent some time with some design firms. And what I noticed with the successful ones is that they actually, they put the user at the center of what they were trying to design. And they called this, of course, human-centered design. And I thought, you know, we have tough challenges. We have recurring challenges. We also have people that are supposed to be at the center of what it is that we do. Um, and, and thus, learner-centered design was, was born. And the main premise is, is to 
design the solution to the challenge with the people that are having the challenge rather than for them. And it, and it dawned on me, maybe this is it. Maybe this is why every change that we seem to see in education doesn't really seem to stick. We're constantly looking for buy-in um, or some way to make others uh, like our solution and coerce them when, when really um, we actually need to have them closely involved with the development of the solution and make sure that that one solution that we have isn't the one solution, that there's no immovable stakes in the ground, that we're just experimenting with things as a larger group to see if it's, it's, it's actually going to work for us. And so I think, you know, we wanted to create a book that outlines this experience, but we also wanted to create something that really works for the busy principle. And one of the things that I think the busy principal and the busy district leader needs is they need a little bit of, uh, they need small tidbits of information, edible sound bites. Uh, they, they need to have a little bit of a smile and a laugh during their day. And they need things that are practical. So one of the things I think we're most proud of is that when we were creating this book, we were constantly working with school leaders with every part saying, does this work? How could we make this better? Even does this make you laugh? And we wanted to make sure that when people walked away with changing change using, using learner-centered design, that they not only um, got something out of it, but they had a truly great user experience, or in our case, learner experience. And that's what we have here um, for everyone to, to look at in the book. We shared that we really enjoyed this resource. And as you said, Kale, it's it's got some humor. It's got those uh, nuggets and some pretty powerful um, questions and statements in a very consumable um context. And, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the phases and charity. Maybe we can uh, switch over to you and ask you to give us a very brief overview of the five phases. And I I realize that um, you provide professional learning and sometimes those sessions might go for days and we're really just skimming the surface, but enough to help our our learners and our listeners understand um, a little bit more about this process, Change Done Better. So in the learner-centered design process, um, there are five phases, appreciate, illustrate, ideate, iterate, and proliferate. And so in each phase, uh, a learner-centered design or an LCD team, which would be made up by a whole diverse eclectic array of our learners, would go through a process to co-construct a solution uh, to eventually proliferate. Um, So one of the key pieces here is that uh, we really redefine the term learner to include parents, community members, leaders, teachers, and students, because the very first phase of learner-centered design, which is appreciate, is about flattening hierarchies, uh, where we use our existing expertise internally to deepen our understanding of the problem and to really empathize with the individuals, our learners who experience the problem. And we do that through a whole variety of tools that are outlined in the book uh, that might include focus groups, firsthand experiences, surveys, and much, much more. And so it's really about developing empathy and sitting with the problem. Um, So often we race to solutions and fall into the trap of solutionitis. And so the appreciate phase is about doing our ethnography and sitting with the problem, really understanding it before we move into illustrate. The second phase which is illustrate, is about painting a picture, figuratively, of the ideal um, to co-construct the solution state metrics, to distill down our actual goals, and to really name the features and characteristics of a future solution without actually naming the solution itself. (laughs) So what's the end in mind without naming the the means to the end? Mm -hmm. And then once we have a sense of where we're going, 
we don't necessarily know how to get there, we move into ideate. And this is a really fun phase where we get to brainstorm and use a variety of techniques um, to generate ways to solve the problem or ways to really achieve a future idealized solution state. And so it's about igniting our creative juices. It's about uncovering multiple possible solutions. Um, one of the schools that I have gotten a chance to learn about recently um, that's doing a lot of innovative work actually has a rule called, called the rule of 51. And so when they're using design thinking and when they're in, a, in an ideation or a um, brainstorming phase, they actually um, always try to generate at least 51 possible solutions before they select one. And one of the fatal flaws in any ideate phase or any brainstorming process is that we have a first wave of ideas and ideation is rich. And then we sort of pick the first best idea and roll with it. But that goes against so much that we know and understand about brainstorming and ideation. Um, when in fact, there's oftentimes multiple waves of ideas and there's different techniques, including things like cross industry innovation that we can use to generate more uh, and ultimately better possible solutions. So in the ideate phase, um, we're definitely trying to use techniques that are tried and true to um, uncover a whole variety of possible solutions before we pick the best ones to move forward. And sometimes we pick more than one. So once we've gone through the third phase of ideate, we move into the fourth phase of iterate, where we actually prototype our solutions with our learners and we get their feedback. And we almost go back into um, a state of, of, of appreciation where we say, hey, let's trial out some of these solutions with our learners in small ways uh, and see what they think and see what the response is. Is this something people are really excited about? And um, if we haven't essentially landed on a solution that is delightful and surprising and effective, then maybe we can actually go back in the process. And so in the fifth phase, which is proliferate, we um, think about clever ways to scale out and sustain um, the best ideas. And this is really the ones that are effective. And so very early on in the illustrate phase, we actually ask ourselves, what would our learners actually be saying and producing if our solution were effective? And so we look to see, is our solution effective? Are our learners saying and producing the types of um, observable nuggets of evidence that we named earlier on in the process. And that would be our way of gauging whether or not our solution were working in small ways and then possibly in larger ways. Now it's, it's true that in any process, um, I, LCD is not a, um, necessarily a, a rapid process. In fact, sometimes it can take time. And uh, many folks I think are um, sort of cautious to embark on something that might take some time. And uh, we can all fall into the trap of wanting to take what we might call seductive off-ramps, seductive shortcuts mm -hmm. in the process. And we really um, encourage folks to stay true with the process because I haven't seen a lot of shortcuts that have actually worked in the field. Um, some of the seductive shortcuts that we notice that people um, want to take often uh, in each phase might include um, in the appreciate phase, doing a little bit of ethnography and then sort of jumping into the first solution. Like, oh, I have a sense of this problem now. And so here's the solution. And we almost jump right into iterate or proliferate. And so um, this can sort of also be known as, as consultation where we sort of send out a single survey, but really we're just looking for um, 
a rubber stamp almost of our process. Oh yeah, we did this. Check the box. Totally. And there are these seductive sort of off ramps and shortcuts at, at every phase. Uh, let's say we do our ethnography well in the first phase and then we move into illustrate and we create metrics for success. And then we prematurely illustrate the actual solution instead of the features and characteristics, characteristics mm -hmm. of the solution mm -hmm. state. Um, that's another sort of accidental um, hop, skip, and a jump over the process. Mm -hmm. In the ideate phase, we often go for the first best idea instead of really sitting and taking the time to diverge and converge and use different techniques. And in the iterate phase, oftentimes we might come up with a solution, but then really fail to test it with those who will be using it. Um, and oftentimes this can really ultimately end up costing us a significant amount of time and, and money um, because we aren't really looking for feedback um, the way we should be in Iterate, but rather just a rubber stamp of our predetermined mm -hmm. solution. So in each of these phases, I think we really need to adopt the mindset and do them with fervor. Mm -hmm. So there are two connections to our conversation so far that I really appreciate. Uh, one is that we're really looking at everyone within the organization as a learner, and we've we've had that com conversation here, and and that's something that's very different, especially if you've got leaders who come from a school-centered design model, um, where you know we're just coming up with these solutions and then thrusting them upon the organization, and not really uh, looking at the challenge, solving the challenges as as uh, a learning challenge, and inviting others into um, other learners into the the design of whatever the solution is. And then this other thing that, that you mentioned, Charity, um, was practitioners as researchers too. Like how do we how do we research our our own practice and and define what are the problems and, and work with those learners to co-create some of these solutions. And I think the school-centered paradigm is this idea that we've got these external solutions that somebody has and we can just sort of <laughs> plop them in our context and we know that those mm -hmm. aren't sustainable, that they don't mm -hmm. necessarily work. Um, so those are two, two of my connections. Um, and that leads to our next question, which is really, uh, in your book, you've, you've got um, some really interesting examples of small to large challenges that uh, school leaders face. and. Um, how do how school leaders can um, come up with some solutions around those? So could you sort of take this framework and uh, bring it to life? And what would be what's a, a, one of your favorite learner experience challenges that you share in the book that um, our listeners might be able to have a little more flesh on this idea? Well, it's interesting because probably one of the most interesting ones that we had was one of the first ones that we had when we're really testing the idea of LCD and, and seeing, you know, does this actually work? Um, and so we were approached by a principal uh, early on in our uh, development process who was really struggling with professional development. He was looking for some sort of different model. And, you know, typically um, he either designed the PDs or they would, they would bring someone in from, you know, some faraway land um, with the, the sort of canned professional development regardless of where the staff was at with that particular initiative. And uh, there was no stickiness, it would be hit and miss. And so he was, he's like, you know, I, I really need to think about a different model of how we uh, create professional development in our school. Can you help us? So we had a, a two challenges there. Number one was to make an effective PD for the one that was coming up for them. But the second one was actually to take them through the process. And so um, we sent a small group of our ethnographers out to meet, not with the principal, believe it or not. We said, you know, as interesting it would be to meet with you, 
we need to meet with the people that are going to be impacted by the solution. So we need to meet with a bunch of your teachers. And we said, please, not just the, the typical, you know, department heads. We want everyone there, the, the people um, all the way from those who are really on board in, in terms of where you're going with this initiative and, and, and those two who are not. And so we, um, we had the, um, the group assemble this group of uh, diverse and eclectic learners in the appreciate phase. And we interviewed them and you know, we found out some of the, same, the, the things that we would have predicted that their current experience was sort of sit and get and it didn't meet them where they're at. It didn't make change to, to practice. And you know, so we, we started to understand that. And, and then we moved into the illustrate phase with them and said, what would, the, what would PD, the best PD look like? And we could predict some of the things that they said, of course, hands-on, practical. They were kind of a rambunctious, large secondary staff and they wanted it to be social, fun and competitive, a sense of connection. But after developing this relationship with, with them, um, they actually unearthed the, the dirt that we really needed and, and they kind of, one of their um, one of their folks said, you know, listen, let's be honest. We can really be like our students sometimes as a staff. He said, we're easy to get off task. Sometimes we don't follow through, and we thought this was great because they were vulnerable enough to say, hey, um, PD is not working because of the canned provider, whatever it is. It's also not working because sometimes we're not a lot different than our students. And, and that to me was a really important piece of ethnography for us to take away. So, so there's two things going on here. First and foremost, we're involving the staff in the design of their PD, but secondly, we're also using the ethnography to create the day. So we took the Intel back, uh, so into the ID8 phase, the Intel back to our larger design team. We laid out their learn best wins, and uh, we talked about how we can make an immersive experience, but we said, hey, we need to address the big one for them. And the big one for them is, is how do we keep them on task without, you know, giving the heavy message? Or maybe we could put a big sign up that says, pay more attention. You know, like we didn't want to do something like that because clearly that, that wouldn't work. And so one of our designers actually asked a really interesting question. They said, for whom are we always on our best behavior? And so you can picture there's like food wrappers all over the place and we're all tired and we don't like each other at this point. And finally, one of our designers says, you know who I always behave for is my grandma. And we all kind of looked at each other and went, hey, hey, that's interesting. So we realized that with uh, close to the school, there was actually two senior centers. So we, um, what we did is we um, sent back to this school. This is what our general ideas were. And we asked their permission to, and we said, we can't tell you about it. It's our surprise and delight factor. <laughs> and they said, um, they said, and they said, you know what, we're, we're willing to go with this. So, so there they are on this professional development day. We're just getting started. And we, we brought in 30 uh, seniors to sit with each of the groups of teachers to make sure that they would stay on task and be a part of the process. <laughs> and so it was a very unique way because you know what we saw is we saw even some of the more, let's say, disengaged uh, people be completely engaged because they knew that they had someone there that it was an important day for them and, and for the seniors it was a wonderful day for them to connect with what was going on in the school but in the end what we did is we created a way to keep people on task without telling them you need to stay on task plus develop a connection with the larger group and then after that i mean the the day went really well but the best part was is that the staff felt like they were connected to the development of their own professional development Plus, they saw the importance of a surprise and delight factor. So as a result, this is the model that this school uses. I'm actually here today 
um, uh, right now. This is the model that this group uses. They use the LCD model to design their professional development today. So it was a, a win-win because not only were they surprised and delighted with the outcome, but they also realized that we now are a part of our own professional development. We are the uh, flattened hierarchy experts on our own PD. And mm -hmm. so that was a really great example for us. So thanks for sharing that example. Um, I can imagine the teachers with the surprise and delight when they came in and had <laughs> had their newfound friends joining them. That must have been fun. Well, I won't lie that the, um, the sort of P, the P to E ratio, which you'll see in the book, means puke to excitement mm -hmm. ratio was quite high for us because we weren't really sure how this was going to go. And we weren't sure if people were going to be upset or, or the seniors were going to be mad or mm -hmm. we, we weren't sure. But in the end, you know what? It was um, we all behave well for grandma. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and it worked out just uh, it worked out beautifully, mm -hmm. to be honest. Healthy risk taking. It was. So, you know, we often talk about the role of a teacher changing in a more learner focused environment. You know, how and why should the role of a leader change as well? And um, in your book, you share a couple of examples of operational tasks that management um, completes. So, for example, leading um, a, a staff meeting and you talk about every experience being a, a potential learning experience. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, why the leader's role needs to change and how they can turn some of those experiences or those functions of management into experiences. So, so maybe I'll jump on this a bit and, and Charity will jump in as well. But I think in what I'm starting to realize is that the number of management tasks for the school leader is never going to decrease. In mm -hmm. fact, they're likely going to continue to increase um, as we we go through our, our careers. And so I don't think that we can dichotomize leadership and management every, anymore. I think we have, have to actually look at it as, as leadership through management. And so one of the pieces that's um, super interesting to me is all of us have policies or, or, or those sort of bits of technical managerial stuff that we have to cover. How can we take those and turn those into learning experiences? For example, if we want people to learn about the anaphylaxis policy because it's life or death, would we say that the best way for them to learn about it is to hand them a piece of paper with the anaphylaxis policy on it? I don't think we would. And so I think the true artistry of leadership is actually looking at something like that and say, and saying, how would people learn this best? And if it's important enough to have on our precious staff meeting agendas, which we have very little time to do, then doesn't it make the most sense that we would actually want them to learn this? And I think what we're trying to do, and we were just doing this this past week uh, here in our district with our principals, is how do we take things like visible thinking strategies, critical thinking strategies, and apply them so that we use the content, um, which is the sort of technical managerial stuff, as the way for us to learn these other things. And I think that's where I'm starting to find right now, and I think that's a direction where Charity and I are going to go in the future is, is how do we take those management tasks, if you will, and turn them into leadership opportunities? Because to be blunt, and I can say this, I think as a principal, I, I think it's, a, it's become a convenient off-ramp for us to say that I'd like to be a leader, but all I can do is manage. When actually, the, the, I think the people that are being really effective as leaders, they find ways to mm -hmm. lead through management. I, I'd like to see those, those lines blurred a little bit more if, if we could. So I, one of the things I connect there is this idea, reimagining the phrase learning organization. Um, a learning organization is where learning is a thread throughout everything. No mm -hmm. matter what we do, 
it's a, a learning opportunity. It's a learning experience. And then as leaders, how do we design the, the surrounding pieces of that experience, that task, that management, whatever, to be a learning opportunity? And I think that's, that's a shift in mindset um, because you're right. We do have this, we tend to dichotomize those two things. Here's right. management. Today I'm doing the management, and I'll do a little bit of leadership if I have some time <laughs> to do that. But how do how do I shift my mindset so that you know, regardless of what management task I'm doing, it is a learning opportunity. Whether it's a learning opportunity for me, the learning opportunity of the other people in the organization who happen to intersect with that task at any one time. Um, so I I love that idea, sort of re rethinking. Mm -hmm. uh, what is a learning organization? And um, that's that's one of my big takeaways from mm -hmm. our conversation today, as well as reading yeah. your book. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that um, we are interested in is how does leadership change when you're leading a learner-centered environment? And so clearly one of the things, one of the reasons why we connected um, to your work. So we have another podcast, which we call Shift Your Paradigm, um, where we're interviewing school leaders from around uh, our country um, who are leading learner-centered environments and trying to sort of tease out like what do leaders do differently in a learner-centered environment as opposed to a school-centered environment. So actually, I think there are two things that I take from our conversation here, and that is one, learner-centered leaders research their own practice and research isn't a dirty word. Mm -hmm. um, we actually <laughs> inquire, mm -hmm. how about that, into our own practice. And also learner-centered leaders um, create learning experiences through every aspect of the organization. Um, and I think those are two things that in traditional school-centered leadership, one might not necessarily um, connect those things. So from your perspective, what are some other things that learner-centered leaders might have to be good at in terms of what's what are some competencies, do you think? Yeah, so um, I think a, a couple. Um, I think the... Uh, the one thing that we've really connected with is the idea, and Charity mentioned this earlier, uh, is to really think who before do, you know, and I, I look at some, Simon Sinek did some wonderful work about start with the why, mm -hmm. but I wonder, I wonder if we can push a little bit deeper than that. And the reason I say that is, is because the why for you um, versus the why for the the busy teacher or the why for the student that works at night, it could be very different. And I think that we really have to start about uh, with the who, like who are we actually um, dealing with in this situation? Charity did a, a great job, I think, of talking about how we need to connect with the problem, but probably uh, even more importantly, as she said, we need to connect with the people that are having the problem. Too often, I think we complain you know, geez, the students aren't learning this, or the the staff seems bored at the staff meeting, as if, as if that's their their fault, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to go. I wonder, I wonder why uh, that is, and I think, um, Charity, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the the multiple solutions piece, which is what Charity has really introduced me to. Sure, <clears throat> I think the the big idea here is that you know ultimately learner centered design is an inclusive process, meaning like what Kayla is saying, we think who before do, and we engage in the process as leaders with our learners. And that's a very democratized approach. Um, now we've seen across the nation and beyond uh, that um, many, I think districts even have taken this very command and control approach to leadership. 
Um, and what I have seen happen in many cases is this sort of trickle down effect where that style of leadership is being modeled for principals and then principals are modeling that style of leadership for their teachers and teachers in their classrooms are leaders. And so that may become in many cases, um, the unintentional and inadvertent uh, result is that teachers almost take this command and control approach. But um, I, we really see this huge opportunity to model democratized leadership uh, where we're co-constructing solutions together. And so thinking who before do is a big part of that. I also think um, that when it comes to ideation, there's still this fundamental idea that when we engage in brainstorming, it looks like a few people sitting around a table, you know, throwing out their ideas until it's over. But there's actually so much that we can learn from innovators and creative types uh, and from other industries about the ways to approach uh, ideation, brainstorming, and, and, and creative processes. Uh, quick story, I was working with this really cool uh, design firm recently. They're sort of what I might call a mini IDEO. And they had taken on a client that was um, essentially a network of hospitals to uh, use design thinking to come up with a solution. And the solution in this case was not going to be a product, but rather a uh, process. And so the problem that the hospital um, network had been experiencing, and this is a little icky to some degree. Oh, was great. <laughs> after <laughs> surgeries, their rate of um, items left behind. In oh, oh come surgery. on. <laughs> Seriously, this is a thing. Now it was the rate was too high, right? So <laughs> one is too high. <laughs> exactly. But this is a known phenomenon, right? It occurs. <laughs> and um, many hospitals implement a lot of um, sort of solutions and processes and procedures to avoid leaving things behind in, in patients. This network of hospitals, their rates were above average and too high. So they asked this design firm to design a solution, a process to reduce their rates. So they knew what the solution state was. They just didn't know what the solution would actually be. And the design firm used a process called idea inversion. This is one of two dozen different brainstorming techniques outlined in the Changing Change book. And so what that does, basically, they sat around a table and they said, if we were trying to leave things behind in patients, what are everything that we would do? If we were trying to engineer the problem, <laughs> what are all the steps, the processes, the procedures, the, um, the mindsets, the attitudes, the perceptions? What are all the things that we would do if we were trying to engineer the problem? And they write all those down in one column. And then on the, on the, in the second column, they literally every single one of those things into their into their opposite state and so what you might have then in the second column is a list of possible uh, nuggets or, or outright solutions for procedures processes mindsets um, checks and balances and, and such that could lead to a solution this is one of dozens of techniques mm -hmm. so one of the mindsets really is about um, generating and testing multiple possible solutions before we land on one. Yeah. We need to really slow down our approach to solving problems. There's, there's one other thing I was wondering if I could jump on, which is, and I think it's, mm -hmm. it's key, is I think we have um, taken this idea of resistors and resistance in schools um, to a place that is, is really troubling. Um, one of the things that Charity and I have both noticed when working with design firms is those people who are the outliers 
are the ones that actually provide the most interesting and unique problems and solutions. And I think what we've done often in education is we've said, well, we hope those people who are resistors will kind of move off to the side. Um, maybe they'll leave our school. Uh, maybe they'll transfer. Maybe they'll retire. And I, I think one of the things that we have to fundamentally change is we need to rethink our resistors as unexpected experts. And all I think is, is that we would never want to marginalize students who struggled. Why would we want to marginalize if our teachers are struggling or mm -hmm. our adults are struggling with their experience? And to me, if leaders can do one thing, I think fundamentally different, it is start to seek out those people that we call resistors and rename them as unexpected experts that can actually get us closer to a better solution. Because one of the things that Charity always talks about is, is that the resistors are out there. And if we push those people farther and farther away, they're just going to come up with a resistance that comes back. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's the way that we want to approach it. I think that every person in our organization wants to do a good job. And if we can help them be a part of this process, not at the end, not as the rubber stamp, but at the very front end saying, we need to hear what the challenges are. I think that's really going to take the leaders not only to a different place with solutions, but also in terms of developing trust with a group of people that are, that are, that are out there. And, you know, one of the things we always talk about is, is there are things that we have resisted, you know, uh, the four of us right here, that mm -hmm. we've said, you know what, I, I just don't agree with that. What we wouldn't want is for us to be pushed off to the side because we actually were just challenging a thought. All we're saying is, is we have a different point of view. Can we talk more about this? So mm -hmm. let's make sure that we rethink resistance. I think that's key for us mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, so interesting competencies, rethinking resistance and viewing resistors as unexpected um, experts and um, also making the connection for learner-centered leaders to really be willing to... Um, commit to thinking processes. So whether it's the brainstorming strategies or protocols you share um, or some other structured protocols uh, for uh, listening um, or even sort of your strategies for becoming an educational ethnographer. So really being willing to um, go beyond a, a, a more surface conversation and dig deeper to better understand the, the challenge and reflect on practice, as Randy said. So great thoughts. Uh, thanks for sharing those. So to wrap up our show, what's next for you, uh, Charity and Kale? Like, what are you working on that you'd like to share um, that might be something new and exciting? Well, when it comes to um, learner-centered design, we've um, been working hard to really practice our own process on ourselves. So our uh, workshop, LCDX, the learner-centered design experience, is sort of always um, evolving. Mm -hmm. And um, most recently, we actually gamified the whole two-day LCDX uh, process and led it for 80 emerging leaders in Hong Kong as a two-day uh, gamified experience. And uh, so there was um, actually an opportunity to put these 80 leaders at the center of a process that they got to experience instead of learn about and so they were actually the active agents in the center of um, the whole process and experience to produce solutions. So instead of us coming in and sharing our solutions mm -hmm. over the course of two days, it turned into a lot more of a think tank where these individuals were actually uh, learning about the process and um, using the process and coming up with a whole variety of solutions that we got to all learn from. Mm -hmm. 
so an immersive experience, and I definitely would enjoy the gamification part. It, it may be known around here that I'm slightly competitive, so <laughs> that would. <laughs> He rolled his eyes. That would, um, you know, that would certainly tap into me. So that sounds like a lot of fun. I appreciate that you are uh, modeling the way of iteration and and reflecting on the on the work and going back uh, to redesign. Absolutely. There's an we learn every time. Every time we do it, we learn so much and and are able to share as well. Another piece that we're working on right now is really ubiquitizing the book from a book for educational leaders to a book about democratized inclusive leadership. Mm. Um, we've already had individuals and organizations in um, the domains of forestry, and I live in Seattle, Washington, and we have a lot of really. Um, interesting companies here with great um, sort of everyday problem solver approach, uh, really corporate culture, so to speak, um, that have begun to express a lot of interest in uh, learner-centered design as a model to be um, used and that would be highly relevant in, in industry. And so um, ultimately, I think our next step will really be to ubiquitize the book to be mm-hmm. cross-industry relevant. Um, ultimately, the ideas already are, it's just not specific. Mm-hmm. So That'll be another next step for us, and we may be starting starting to work with these organizations in out of education very soon. The last bit was really the this leadership through management concept. I think one of the things that we'd love to try and look at, at is how can we help school leaders um, with their sort of day to day operations. And I think where we're going to be heading is is to try and find ways um, to help the busy school leader. And I think this could be the thrust of our, our next project together is to try and create a repository of, of ideas, uh, even staff meeting templates uh, and, and professional development templates that model the learner-centered design process, but just allow um, that low sort of threshold for our busy people out mm-hmm. there to get involved, but with a super high ceiling on it so that they can actually uh, take some of these ideas and make them their own when it comes to leading through management. So I, I'm hopeful that that's going to be the next, uh, the next phase for us uh, going forward because with all the spare time that Charity and I have, um, we, we really need to fill it up with something else. So, yeah, that's where we're going. We have the same problem. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Charity and Kale. And for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Charity and Kale's work, um, you'll see some links in the show notes, a link to the many resources that are available at PBL Consulting, a link to the book, and also a link to Kale's blog. Thank you so much for having us. It's been Thank great. Thank you for having us. Each episode, we leave you with a question or two to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's questions, how can you apply the learner-centered design process to your leadership work? And what leadership tasks might you turn into learning experiences today? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or access additional resources that we shared, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode 19. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with other conversations featuring other thought leaders. Thank you again, Charity and Kale. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? 
You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.